If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Patrick's journalism, uh, which I think many of you are familiar with from the London Review of Books and the Independent, He's, all, he's won the Martha Gellhorn Prize, the James Cameron Prize, and the Orwell Prize. So I think that tells you something of the tradition in which um, he writes. And the thing which is extraordinary about this book, which I do commend, is that um, it's sort of history as it's happening. Because I think that for many of us, including people like me who go out to Syria and Iraq and report from there, it doesn't stop us getting confused. Actually, you know, the more time I spend there, quite often I think the more I get confused. Because the situation is so complex. Um, and what Patrick has done in this book is he's brought all of these strands together in a, you know, in a pretty slim volume. And in that sense, I think it's, it's invaluable and it is extraordinarily Timely. And because it is so timely, I'm going to start right where we are now, Patrick. We, we've seen this horrific scene over the last um, two days of this Jordanian pilot who was brought down over Syria, captured by Islamic State, and then we, uh, and then he was burned alive in a cage. I mean, one of the most horrific things that one, one could imagine. Explain it to us. Why such barbarity? Well, why the cage? I suppose they thought that beheading people no longer guaranteed being top of the news agenda as it did last year. So they were going to do something even more horrific. Also, you know, I mean, the whole tradition of uh, Daesh, or they're called in the area, or ISIS, is to intimidate, to terrorize. I mean, I think like, like the Mongols heaping up the decapitated heads of people in Baghdad when they captured it. Uh, and it's been pretty successful. It makes you a lot of enemies, but it also terrifies them. And what, what impact does it have in, in Jordan? Because you have this, this coalition led by the Americans who are bombing the Islamic State. Jordan is part of that, that coalition. If they wanted to stop Jordanians, the Jordanian government from participating, if they wanted to make sure that the Jordanian population didn't support it, is this an effective tactic or is this something where they've overreached themselves? No, they probably overreached themselves and they probably don't care very much either. 
and it wasn't too smart last year to attack the Kurds. I mean, they already had enemies in Baghdad, they had enemies in Damascus. Why did they suddenly take on the Kurds in Iraq? Why did they go for Kobani, which wasn't much in their interest to have a battle there, instead of going west towards Aleppo? I mean, I think last year, because they had a hundred days when they won these sort of extraordinary Napoleonic victories uh, in capturing Mosul, northern Iraq, and then eastern Syria, one perhaps gets an exaggerated extent sense of how smart these people are, or it gives them a sense of magical qualities, while in fact, yeah, they do. They are some sort of mixture of military expertise and religious fanaticism, but it also it was a fact they this happened because of the weakness of their opponents, the weakness of the Baghdad government. So then they attack the Kurds. I think also a sense of you know we are divinely inspired, and the only way they actually deal with anybody else is to attack them. And inside the Islamic State, they always try to monopolize power, even when they try to and when they take over in alliance with somebody, they kick them out or kill them. <coughs> Give us a bit of, of background. So everybody here is is familiar that you've got a a civil war going on in Syria, um, and then you have uh, a government in Iraq which seemed to be more or less in control and then seemed to be not in control. And then you have this state which has been carved out between the two countries, which is run by these religious fanatics, the, the Islamic State, as they call themselves. Now, just give us a little bit of background. How did Islamic State or ISIS come about? Who are these people? Well, you know, I mean, they came out of al-Qaeda in Iraq um, from the beginning, incredibly violent and incredibly sectarian, created the reaction against them, utilized by the Americans to divide them from the Sunni tribes. Um, then Washington's announced a famous victory, but they were never, I, I don't think they were ever suppressed to anything like the degree that Washington pretended, particularly in places like Mosul and so forth. They were so much in uh, control that they could basically but, but tax just, people. Just to go back a little bit, the, the government in Iraq was sheer dominated and there was a great division between the, the Shia and the Sunni. But the Americans, and, and a civil war, which went on in around 2006 and so on, the Americans then brought the Sunni tribes on board with what were called the Awakening Councils. They, they, paid, they paid Sunni tribal leaders to start to support the government. It did work to some extent, didn't it? It worked a bit. But, it worked I mean, better the, than anything else. Yeah, it sort of it suppressed it. They'd over... Uh, sort of extreme violence had alienated the Sunni. The Sunni weren't that worried about them killing Shia, but then they started killing local government employees, you know, the guy who was meant to be fixing the drains or something, um, was started, they were murdered by them. Uh, they started insisting that uh, their fighters marry local women. Um, the, the Sunni community get got more and more frightened of them. And also the Americans were there as sort of to protect them from Shia attacks and from Al-Qaeda counterattacks. But I, th I think what was missing in the analysis of this was that they sort of stopped attacking Americans, but they didn't 
wholly stop attacking Shia. Mm -hmm. uh, and that went, that never stopped. I mean, bombings, I mean, you know, Baghdad. Mm -hmm. Horrific number of civilians, ordinary Shia in marketplaces outside yeah. mosques, went on being, kill, being killed when Al-Qaeda was meant to be at its weakest. Yes. Of 2009 and 2010. And when we, you know, so we loosely, the international media had largely stopped covering it because we were onto something else by then. Yeah, because all the officers in Baghdad that used to be staffed, you know, that then there was one staffer, then there was nobody, then there was a stringer, then there was nobody. Mm. Before we, we're going to talk about journalism, because you write about journalism and you're very critical of, of, of journalism and of policy, so we're going to come on to that. Um, but one of the things which I think is, is very complex and all that is that the British government, the American government, they support the Iraqi government, which is fighting the Islamic State, and yet in Syria, suddenly we're on the other side. We're against the Syrian government, which is fighting the Islamic State, and we're with some other rebels, but we don't really support them. I mean, is there any way in that that, that Western policy makes sense? No, no. Ah. Definitely. Just wanted to and, get and that this clear. is one of the great strengths of, 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 of ISIS that makes it look as though it has sort of Napoleonic powers, I think that it has all this great ring of enemies, but they don't, they dislike each other uh, almost as much as they dislike ISIS. I mean, the Turks say, yes, we're absolutely against uh, the Islamic State. And you say, Bill, that sounds good. We've declared them terrorists. And uh, then, and of course, Assad is exactly the same. And then, of course, the PKK terrorists, too. Just the so Turks, eventually the Turks it's been, fighting for independence yeah. within Turkey. So eventually it's all been so diluted that actually they're not going to do anything against the Islamic State. And somehow jihadis find it rather easy to cross the Turkish-Syrian border. But I mean, but going back to your, to your other point, the, yeah, it is astonishing. We're against the Islamic State in Syria, and the main opponent of the Islamic State is in fact the Syrian army. If Assad goes, probably that will begin to disintegrate. So... We want Assad to go, but that will actually be doing a tremendous favour for to ISIS. But Assad is a brutal dictator. He has murdered um, hundreds of thousands of people. He has hundreds of thousands locked up. Systematic rape, the most horrific torture. You want us to be with him? Yes, because I mean the same reason that at some point you have to choose. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think he is as bad, you know, like 1941. Well, he's not great. No, 1941, 1941, uh, Hitler invades Soviet Union. You know, Churchill didn't hang about in immediately having an alliance with Stalin, mm -hmm. who killed millions of people. That at some point you have to choose. Certainly in this case you have to choose. And they might have to choose quite quickly, it seems to me. I mean, what happened? The Syrian army is getting weaker, to my mind. It's fought out. It's difficult getting recruits. Um, Assad doesn't have any new political ideas to increase his constituency. I don't know if you agree, but that's my mm -hmm. vision of it. Well, he has a lot of support, though, from outside. He has the Iranian Revolutionary Guard fighting with him. He has Hezbollah <laughs> fighting with him. A lot yeah. of reinforcements. Yeah, but I still think they're getting weaker, and I think that ISIS is getting stronger in Syria, despite Kobani. Now, but what happens if ISIS attacks Syrian army units around Homs, Hama, in, in Syria, and they begin to win. Are the Americans going to use not use their airstrike power because 
they think Assad's a bad man, which is going to assist ISIS, or are they going to do that? So at a certain moment, this could turn into a very practical decision they have to take. And would you be in favor, then, of American airstrikes? Yeah, in, in this case, you know, in Kobani, I mean, I'm against foreign intervention, but I think there are humanitarian situations. Oh, no, this isn't a like humanitarian a... situation. This is a this is a naked political situation where the concern is that this organization is going to massively expand across the Middle East. That's not just humanitarian, is it? It's much more than that. It's much bigger well, no, it than that. it is humanitarian. But, I mean, it's massively humanitarian, mm. and a lot of humans are going to die. But, Will fewer you know, die if the Americans expand the bombing? If uh, the Syrian army is under real pressure and it begins to buckle, yeah, it's effective. But you need, you know, as with the Kurds at Kobani, I mean, up to mid-October, um, the Americans still seem to have regarded the Syrian Kurds as the branch of the PKK, the Kurdish guerrillas in Turkey, who is down in their books, which is down in their books as a uh, terrorist. And they regarded the uh, local, the Syrian Kurdish branch as equally terrorist, uh, which made a certain, a certain logical sense. But then I think they realized that ISIS was about to win another victory, and they couldn't let that happen. So they started direct tactical bombing in contact with the Kurds on the ground. And that does work quite well, I think. It doesn't, I don't think it worked anywhere else in Syria because ISIS is quite well organized. They don't have headquarter buildings. They don't move in convoys. And the last few months, about two-thirds of the airstrikes in Syria have been at Kobani. But I'm interested that you are in favor of American airstrikes there because... Um, it's clear from, from your book and also from mm. your other writing that uh, you would see the American intervention, the, the Western intervention in Iraq back in uh, 2003 as a large part of the problem or a large cause mm. of the problem. Is that right? Sure, yeah. No, but I think there's a difference. Foreign intervention to take over a country, I'm completely opposed to because I think it's invariably in the interest of the country that does the invading. Mm -hmm. uh, take 2003, the Americans, they invaded, and then they occupied the country. The two things are often put together. I think the Americans might even have got away. Most Iraqis that time wanted to get rid of Saddam. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't just want to do that. They wanted to take it over, because they wanted to get rid of Saddam, and they didn't want Iranian influence to take over from Saddam. <laughs> so they occupied and then it becomes like any imperial regime. Everything's decided by Americans. Um, the country is run by them. But I think there are circumstances where you can have a humanitarian intervention, so long as it's kept to that. The problem is that it seldom is, because that's always the mask of why people take over. Can you think of a good one? Hmm? Can you think of a good one? A, a good, good intervention? A good, yeah, a good, one which you think has worked. Yeah, just recently, I think, Kobani. Kobani. Yeah. These people would have been murdered otherwise. Mm -hmm. Now, the Americans may have had their own reasons for doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what's the most successful humanitarian intervention that probably saved the most people in the last sort of 40 years? To my mind, it's the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia mm -hmm. in whatever it was, 79, yeah. uh, which ended Khmer Rouge rule and the killing fields and the slaughter yeah. of all these people. Did it happen because the Vietnamese were leadership were horrified by the slaughter? No, because they'd been attacked by the government. But for a moment, the interests of what the Vietnam 
and the interests of Cambodia were the same. Coincidentally, I don't think they'd stay the same. Mm. That's what I mean, that there are certain interventions that are positive, whatever the motives behind them. You say here, and this is, I mean, there's a lot of, you make quite a lot of sort of quite bold statements, which is interesting when we're talking about history as it's happening. One of them is that you say the birth of the new state, this is the Islamic mm. state, which you say is a state. That's another, that's another interesting thing, because, of course, politicians are frequently telling us it's not a state. Anyway, the birth of the new state was the most radical change to the political geography of the Middle East since the Sykes-Picot Agreement was implemented in the aftermath of the First World War. Tell us, tell us why you think that. Because I think it... Sh- I mean, first of all, they tore up. They sort of went out and sort of had themselves pictured removing mm-hmm. the frontiers. Um... I think this was a sort of challenge. I was going to say, Sykes-Picot, probably everybody knows, but in case mm. somebody here doesn't know, Sykes-Picot, uh, Mr. Sykes and Monsieur Picot, um, the British and French diplomat who sliced up the Middle East at the, at the end of World War One, at the end of the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, that bit went to the French, um, that bit being Syria and Lebanon, that bit went to... Uh, uh, to Britain, and this was the yeah. line in the line in the yeah, yeah. I mean, the Syrian-Turkish border is yeah. the old railway line, yeah, um, which went sort of straight through villages and mm. straight through communities. But that was the border. So that's basically that. That created the modern Middle East as we know it. And you're saying that this is the biggest change since, yeah, then, since think, 1916. Yeah, I think it's uh, extraordinarily radical. Mm-hmm. I think that also, you know, we had nationalist period in the Middle East of nationalist states which essentially failed we had a small number of states, socialist states that failed I think this is an extraordinarily radical change, I also think it goes socially deeper that I think that nationalism tended to appeal to the middle class but this appeals there's a big social element isn't talked about very much Mm -hmm. with ISIS that it appeals to the poorest of the poor. You look at Syria, who supports them there. It's actually old Barkis strongholds mm-hmm. uh, in sort of hard-scrabble villages in the countryside and northeast Syria that had a terrible drought and famine and people mm-hmm. fled and the Barkis government did nothing for them. Um, that this is the area that support them, supports mm-hmm. uh, ISIS most strongly uh, and similarly in sort of eastern and northern uh, uh, Iraq, and also it's just it's not going away. You know, despite all when one thinks of all the bombast over the last six mm-hmm. months about getting from Obama and Cameron and all the others about weakening uh, ISIS, it's still there. So, do you then see it as a long-term change? I mean, if you're talking about it being the biggest change since 1916, now that's a century ago. So, are you talk, do you envisage a future where the Islamic State, in some form or another, is going to be with us for ten, twenty, a hundred years? I don't know. I mean, I think this is the sort of the crucial thing at the moment: is what, how great is the counterattack against it, which so far is sort of deeply unimpressive, and also the states around it, whatever they say, are basically pretty weak. Jordan. Why are the Arab states so so weak? against ISIS? You know, why were they weak against ISIS? Why were they weak against Israel? Lack of popular support, kleptocratic, the last theocratic absolute monarchies in the world in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. 
Mm. Which is one of the extraordinary things about intervention in Libya and Syria on the part of the the West. There we are supposedly supporting secular democracy. And who are our big allies? Are these um, people who, you know, won't let women drive cars, who run these theocracies and absolute monarchies. Um, And, you know, so this was always contradictory and hypocritical to my mind. You say that, um, if we go back to the whole war on terror, back to 9-11, you see... Pakistan and Saudi Arabia is very critical in that, and, and Western attitudes, Western government attitudes to Pakistan and, and Saudi Arabia is very critical. C- can you explain us a bit about that? Sure, yes. I mean, these were the two big allies, and despite the fact that they were strongly connected with al-Qaeda, they sort mm-hmm. of got off scot-free. Saudi Arabia, 9-11, 15 out of 19 of the hijackers, Saudi, mm-hmm. American official inquiry said the money mostly came from Saudi and Gulf private donors, Bin Laden, part of the elite. You know, where did the Taliban came from? You know, essentially Pakistan uh, from the ISI, from Pakistani mm-hmm. military intelligence, and who recognized <coughs> the Taliban regime? Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. UAE. So strongly connected. But the reaction to 9-11 didn't impinge on Saudi Arabia at all, and only slightly impinged on Pakistan. The Saudis, of course, would say, oh, well, we had to, we afterwards, we did fight the extremists within our midst, and the Kobar Towers were blown up, and that we've re-educated <laughs> all these um, young men who went out to fight jihad. That's what they would say. Yeah, but they, uh, no, I think they liked it as an export, but not as an import. Um, and now I think they're much more frightened of what's yes. there, as you can't really uh, um, distinguish between the two. But at that time, um, <coughs> yeah, they certainly fostered it. People went there, and even to this day, it's got sat- television sat- uh, stations financed by leading Saudis pumping out sectarian uh, hatred. Mm-hmm. When one of them was closed down by the Minister of Information a few months ago, 24 hours later, the Minister of Information, Saudi Minister of Information, was sacked, you know. So they never called on this. And Wahhabism, I mean, the variant of Islam believed in Saudi Arabia, you know, is pretty close to what uh, the Islamic State believes. Yeah, and they go around beheading people too. Beheading and flogging and... uh, one of the things that you make clear, and I would agree with, is that one of the reasons that the Iraqi army um, collapsed um, when ISIS moved into Mosul is because of its sectarian nature and the, the corruption, and they were Shia sectarian. And I wonder if you let Iran off rather lightly in, in this book, because it, the main regional um, fight, as it were, or rivalry is between Sunni Saudi Arabia and Shia Iran. Iran obviously backs Bashar al-Assad, provides troops, backs um, Maliki in, uh, or backed Maliki, the uh, the Iraqi leader, and behind all sorts of very horrible um, militias who do all sorts of sure. vile things. Do you think that you let them off a bit lightly? You know, at some point, and this one's writing a gigantic volume. You know, yes. one has to sort of uh, limit the sort of people one's writing about in extenso. Hmm. I think that what happened in Iraq was a, you know, was a major failure for the Iranians too. Somehow it's been presented as the cunning Iranians once more have come out ahead. But actually they had a government of the whole of Iraq 
which was meant to be allied to them. I mean, Maliki was, why was Maliki there as the prime minister that everybody denounced? Because the Americans actually appointed him originally. Yes. Uh, the American ambassador, but it was somebody who the Iranians could also support, which is what Iraqis believe. I mean, they always say uh, the Americans, the Iranians, shake their fists at each other over the table and shake hands under the table. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, it's not quite as true as Iraqis sometimes imagine, but there's a strong element of truth. Why was he appointed? Because he could get, not because Iraqis particularly wanted him prime minister, but because America and Iran supported him. Why did he get reappointed? Exactly the same thing. The, uh, you know, I remember when the news came through, and a Iraqi friend of mine rang me up and said, you know, the, um, uh, the, uh, the axis of evil and the great Satan have come together again and appointed our prime minister. <laughs> and uh, and that's true. And, and is that a bad thing? Turned out to be a very bad thing because he was disaster. You have this unbelievably corrupt regime which everything gets stolen. Um, you know, there's some places people sort of... Uh, there's a lot of money and there's a contract and there are kickbacks and so forth. But at the end of the day, there is a bridge there. Mm-hmm. In Iraq, no bridge. It all goes. Well, they've actually dismantled the bridge. Yeah, the bridge has been stolen. <laughs> the bridge has been stolen. <laughs> and, yeah. But you get nothing. Yeah. You know, and the army, too, became this extraordinary sort of kleptocratic institution, mm-hmm. which all officers paid for their jobs. One of the ways it's rather difficult to reform is that they paid for their jobs, and they paid for their jobs because they wanted to make money, and they made money because... I mean, I asked a four-star Iraqi general just after the fall of Mosul, you know, why did the army disintegrate? And he said, so corruption, corruption, corruption. He said it started, I'm not sure he's entirely right, he said the Americans setting up the army, they want to outsource everything in good sort of neoliberal uh, economics. So uh, food supply to a battalion would be outsourced to a commercial company. What then happened was the colonel of the battalion, being paid for a battalion with 600 men, it became much in his interest to have only 200 men do a deal with the uh, company that was supposedly supplying them with food. And he and the other officers pocket the difference. But you do that with everything, you know, and also checkpoints on the roads. You know, you've seen You do that with weaponry, too. Yeah, everything. And so I remember saying to an Iraqi politician, I I did a five-part series on Iraq... Ten years after the invasion in 2013, I remember asking an Iraqi politician, you know, what was about the army. He said it'll never fight anybody. Um, so I said, you know, surely some of it will fight. So he said, no, 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 you don't understand. These, are, these aren't soldiers, they're investors. <laughs> they, you know, they bought these jobs. You know, people... So, a colonelcy was about $200,000. So and a divisional, divisional commander was... So the sending out of British and American um, advisors to... Train up the Iraqi army again. Well, I can see why they think they should do that, because it doesn't exist. I mean, there are 12, <laughs> there are 12 brigades. The Americans decide there are 12 brigades which are sort of vaguely held together. Mm. And that's about 3,000 to a brigade. That's 36,000. Mm. Middle of last year, there were 350,000 people in the Iraqi mm. army, so we're only down to a tenth of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Then they want to set up three divisions, which sort of will have some military effectiveness. Yeah. But the problem is, you have an army. You know, as I was saying, you know, where all the officers have bought their jobs, yeah. and 
very difficult to do. How do you also do you include the militias? Because I mean the problem the problem in Iraq, which is very difficult to see any solution to, is ISIS is sort of blessed by its enemies or the nature of its enemies. That there you are a Sunni in a town in uh, northern or western Iraq. You don't like ISIS, but if the main military force of the Baghdad government are these highly sectarian and violent militias, who are going to come into if they take your town, you will be treated as a member of uh, ISIS of Daesh, regardless of the way you're from. So you have to stick with them, just as a matter of survival. <clears throat> How could Mosul be recaptured? It can't really be done by the Kurds or the militias. So you need the Iraqi army to do it, which, which is a little bit less sectarian with Sunni troops in it. Are they going to be able to do that this year? I mean, that's the plan. I, so. I mean, they're talking about retaking Mosul in the summer. I mean, I mean, good luck, but I don't think it's uh, it's going to happen. Look, there's a city in Beji. Yeah, I know Beji. Beji. They attacked the Iraqi army. Attacked that. Oh. I think it was December. Yeah. Uh, and they took it for a bit. But there was one, the Golden Division was there, one good division. There was another division there. There meant to be 10,000 men in the Iraqi division. That's about 4,000 combat troops. Actually, there were only about 200. And that's sort of long off. So the situation will change much since Mosul. And then the other problem, which you mentioned, is after they've taken a place, somebody has to occupy it. But they don't have any troops to do it, so you let in the militias. But then the militias are going to either expel or prevent the return of the Sunni. So you have a completely sectarian situation. Uh, so it's not unreasonable to try and rebuild the Iraqi army, but there isn't much to rebuild it from. Mm. And also the guys who are trying to rebuild it are the ones who created the Iraqi army in the first place. So when you say the Americans and the British are training up this new Iraqi army, you know, I think there needs to be a sort of, Something in brackets explaining what they're going to do different this time from last time. Yeah, well, they and why spend, the outcomes. Going I mean, to be you different. have enormous figures, don't you? I can't remember what they are. I did note them down at one point. Just enormous amounts of yes, the, the Iraqi army had three hundred fifty thousand dollars, on which uh, it spent forty one billion dollars in the three years since two thousand and eleven. And the Americans, I mean, they spent vast amounts of of money on the Iraqi army. Yeah, it just, I mean, it was sort of, it just all disappeared. I mean, and that started in 2004. I remember yeah. the whole military procurement budget went, $1.2 billion. And there were a couple of sort of A4 pieces of paper. Yes. One from Pakistan, which was for about sort of 300 million or something. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast 
and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline. Line definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And they couldn't quite read the handwriting on it of what they were meant to have got, which I think was a few clapped out old armored cars or something. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, but, I mean, how did it happen? Well, actually, most of Amer- Iraqi defense was under control of the Americans then, yes. you know. So either they were the stupidest people in the world, they didn't notice this, or they were on the take themselves. Which do you think it was? I don't think they're that stupid, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there were vast sums of money that people could take without any... Yeah, there was very little accounting uh, in those accounting days, wasn't there? Sort of... You're quite... Before we go on to questions, you're, you're quite critical of our profession, of, of journalists and mm-hmm. how we've reported uh, Iraq and, and Syria. Mm-hmm. What, why? What are we doing wrong? I think, first of all, wars are difficult to report. We were talking about this before mm-hmm. because the sort of you know, the uh, the fireworks take over, mm. and that's what people want to see. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, the cliche of American journalism, or the British journalism. And that tends to take over what's actually happening. I think that particularly in Syria, there was romanticization of the rebels mm-hmm. and the moderate rebels, uh, which sort of was very sort of distorting. I mean, this is a civil war uh, with people on both sides, but just... It sort of ended up for a period to be presented as uh, sort of black hats and white hats. I think that that was um, poorly reported. I think the influence of Saudi Arabia in the Gulf states until recently was scarcely reported. I think particularly also the uh, in Iraq, somehow the war, for a lot of the media, concluded with an American sort of victory in 2008. Mm. I remember ABC television saying to me, uh, before the presidential election, we haven't been on air for 60 days. Yeah. When we talk to our editors back in New York, they say, oh, the war's over, you know, because the surge is won. Yeah. And they said, yeah, but, you know, listen to it, you know, bang, 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 bang. Nobody paid any attention. So, you know, the, the, after all, this is an immensely complicated situation. I was thinking if somebody read the British media, watched television and so forth, would they have understood what's happening? To a degree, yes, if they'd watched... American media, mm-hmm. I think, no, I just don't think. I think if they read the independent ELRB and watched Channel 4 News, they'd be fine. As always, I think that they'd be totally, yeah. which is why, of course, this audience is so, is so knowledgeable. If the phone rang tomorrow, um, it rings twice. Uh, one is David Cameron and the other is Obama. And they say, hell, Patrick, we're in a mess. What should we do? What would you say to them? 
I'd, I'd say that they have to line up all those who are, if they really want to get rid of ISIS, mm. the Islamic State, who I sort of view as modern Nazis, basically, yeah. uh, then they have to do, you know, kind of what Churchill and others did, uh, which is fairly obvious. They need to line up everybody who's against them, uh, which means, yeah, they have to have relations with Assad <coughs> government to get rid of ISIS. They don't have to vote for it, but they do have to do everything to make sure that it doesn't go down in front of ISIS, which is conceivable, and that it can fight ISIS. It needs to do that with as much of the Syrian opposition that actually exists, which isn't now under the umbrella of one al-Qaeda-type organization or another. There isn't much of it. But they, I think they and do what that. there is would never go in with Assad, would it? No, but they don't have to. They just have to, you know, if you can arrange, as the UN be trying to do ceasefires on the Local ground. Local ceasefires, yeah. You know, it's too bloody, for, and people hate each other too much to have an agreement between the government mm-hmm. and the others, but you can have ceasefires. Mm-hmm. Uh, like old Lebanese ceasefires that everybody laughed and said it won't last, they didn't. But a lot less people were killed when you had that mm-hmm. ceasefire. I think they should do that. I think that in a broader sense, when it comes to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, they should be much tougher on... Um, Saudi support for sectarian propaganda mm-hmm. outlets, because I, I think that one of the real important change in our era is the way that Wahhabism, mm-hmm. extreme fundamentalism, has sort of taken over mainstream Sunni Islam, yeah. which after all is a big chunk of 1.6 billion people. Yeah, a big chunk of people. I think they should do that. I think that when it comes to Turkey, they could have been a lot. You know, they got about. I'm not talking about could have. I'm talking about now. We're in. We are where we are. Yeah, I think. Well, first of all, Assad. Uh, but yeah, the closing this, the Turkish border is mm-hmm. something that's five thousand extra jihadis have entered across since last October. So that's a mm-hmm. present issue that they need to address. If they're to do these things, they need better relations with the Iranians and the Russians. Uh, if you want to create a new Syrian ar- Iraqi army, is are you trying to do something that's against ISIS, but it's also to try and limit the influence of the Iranians? If it is, the Iranians will resist that, probably successfully, and build up the militias that they control. You need some sort of agreement there yeah. to have uh, people on the same page as opposing ISIS. And they're not really doing that. You, know, you have, it seems to me on every occasion, you have this bombast. They say, well, yes, we're going to eliminate them, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. When it comes to that, actually, these quite hard political decisions. It won't be easy for them to eat yeah. their own word. They don't have to rush out and say Assad's a good guy, but they do need to do practical things on the ground. They haven't done those. Uh, they don't have to suddenly embrace the Iranians and agree to everything the Iranians want, but they do need practical understandings in which the Iranians will want something back to oppose uh, the Islamic State. And again, they haven't done that. Right, who's got a question? There was a gentleman... Can you hear me? Hello. Um, Do you think um, ISIS will eventually be a threat to the state of Israel? I think it's a threat to pretty well anybody, actually. You know, this is a fanatical military regime which sort of comes out of war and rather lives on war. Uh, Anybody who gets in its way, they attack. Uh, I mean, whether it's Jordan, whether it's the Kurds in Iraq or Syria. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a threat to everybody. Any more questions? 
You just the lady over there. Oh. Yes, yeah. uh, that was a wonderful discussion. I'm a huge fan of both of you, so it's just wonderful to hear you talking. Thank you. But I, I'm slightly disturbed by what Patrick Coven is saying because the idea of the analogy with Hitler and Churchill and bombing the hell out of ISIS, it seems to me over the last decade or so, every time the West has intervened, it's made things considerably worse. And I suppose I have a fear that the idea that you can destroy ISIS is actually part of a rhetoric which leads to the resurgence of the thing that you're trying to destroy. Yep. Um, so I just wondered if you might be able to say something about that. Or just another thing about journalism, which is that, of course, that video, which I haven't watched because I think Suzanne Moore is right, you shouldn't watch it, that video is horrendous, and what they did is horrendous. But when drones land on civilians in Afghanistan, people are being burnt to death. Right? So it's a question of what we're seeing and what we're not seeing. We're not seeing the physical horrors of Western-induced violence. So I'm a bit worried about the rhetoric and the idea that you can wipe out something yeah. in that way. Yeah, Patrick, basically a military solution and also this very interesting point about the, the things that we don't see, the, the yeah, impact no, of attacks. About, yeah, I mean, my idea is not that it's going to solve the What's crucial, it seems to me, is to not let ISIS take the rest of Syria, because it has a better, Syria is 60% Sunni Arab, they have a better constituency there than Iraq. Uh, and it's very sort of practical, what, what happens if they attack and begin to beat and back the Syrian army? What do you do then? I don't think it solves everything, I think it prevents ISIS winning for that period. Um, but isn't that what ISIS want, this big fight with the West, and then more people will support them because they hate the Americans, and so it, it just ratchets They'll get some of the benefits out of this, but also, you know, do they win or do they lose? You know, in a way, it's a very sort of simple situation. I mean, anything you do will have some effect that it will, um, you know, some people will support them because they're being bombed, on, on the other hand. But some of this is just, is, you know, one doesn't have to go down any further roads, to my mind, is just who wins in that situation. They move west towards Homs, the Syrian army begins to disintegrate. Do you support them or don't you? You know, mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't sort of extend it further than that, but that, but it seems to me that's crucial. Yeah, I mean, on the from the other the question of what you see and what you don't. Yeah, that's one of the reasons probably why they burnt to death somebody in a cage that they were being bombed and their fighters were being burnt to death. I mean, this is explanation, mm -hmm. not justification. Sure. But, but uh, that uh, plays a role. Um, it seems to me at the moment you have the sort of worst of all possible worlds that you have a Western intervention, but it's sort of and supposed local intervention, but it's ineffectual. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, it makes things worse. It doesn't actually accomplish any any real aim. Okay, let's move on. More questions? Um, let's go to the gentleman here and then we'll take some from the back. Oh, we've gone over there. We'll, we'll go to two. We'll take, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. I'd like to know who you think is behind ISIS. Okay, who is behind ISIS, Patrick? Well, who was behind were the sort of Saudi and Gulf states. The actual and, states uh, or individuals within those states? I think individuals within those states, but this doesn't happen without the states knowing about it. Okay. I think it's always a bit naive to say sort of Saudi private donors or Kuwaiti mm. private donors. 
and somehow the governments didn't notice what was happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's particularly a good question now. I was certainly a rocky friend of mine was saying, look, you have Islamic State at the moment. Uh, they're recruiting, conscripting every day. So I think they, you know, they, the Americans said that last September, the CIA said they had between 20,000 and 31,500 troops. I like the precision that people produce mm -hmm. these details. It basically means they don't know, but it's these days I think it's over 100,000 because they're conscripting young men mm -hmm. and they're fighting on multiple fronts. They've been paying people $400 uh, a month for that. It, it doesn't, you can, when you look at the oil revenue or everything else, it doesn't quite add up. It seems to be slightly, I don't know the answer to this, I wish I did. Mm -hmm. It seems to be an open question as to whether significant amounts of money are still coming one way or another from the Gulf oil states. Mm -hmm. I mean, what the Saudis say, it's all the fault of the Qataris, because the Qataris were not careful with who they funded in the opposition. The day the Saudis were very careful not to fund ISIS, but the Qataris were all over the place and their weapons and money ended up with ISIS. Yeah, I think that's true, but how careful are the others? And also there's a sort of distinction that I mean, the Turks and others say that they, you know, that we are completely against ISIS. Uh, no, well, how about Jabhat al-Nusra, you know, mm -hmm. a bit more wobbly and somebody... Their idea of a moderate is not anybody else's idea of a moderate. Indeed. You know. And also, you know, you look at uh, social media and uh, put out by jihadis and you see them suddenly carrying these very elaborate anti-tank weapons, you know, mm -hmm. which have been handed over to organizations that the Americans did believe, I mean, genuinely believe were moderate. Yeah, and they've taken and either them or the, given either them. they never were, or they were bought, or they were... You know, or they got them from the Iraqi army. Yeah, but there's some types of very modern stuff that have right. been handed over by the Americans to somebody else, or bought yeah. by the Saudis, that, that you can identify. And of course, they are with the stuff from the Iraqi army as well. Gentleman here, you had a question? Uh, microphone's yeah, coming, and then we'll go to the back. I think you more or less answered my question, which was about how can one cut off funding and arms to, to ISIS, and is this a possible solution, rather than bombing them? But you, you kind of, you might want to say Yeah, I think more. you can cut them off, but I think the, you know, this elaborate stuff on sanctions, you know, this, this is a sort of religious sect, it's not a sort of commercial company. Um, so the idea if we cut off their oil revenues, yeah, it inconvenience them, but they're not going to sort of run up the white flag and declare bankruptcy, you know, so there are limitations. Sure, but they've also, but they do have various, I mean, they make money from ransoms. Not the money from ransoms, but taxing people. And extortion. They can tax people and loot. They've yep. taken over houses. Um, and then transport on the roads and uh, so forth. And this is quite sort of carefully organized. Um, that they don't want to extinguish uh, road traffic. There's one thing we can really talk about, but ISIS is sort of rather astonishingly well organized for such mm. a sort of crazed organization that um, you know, they don't want their areas to be depopulated, so they send people round to the houses in Mosul asking for papers, the person who opened the door, do you own this house? If not, what are you doing here? If they discover the real owners have gone to Baghdad or Erbil or Turkey, they give them 10 days to come back. Otherwise, they confiscate the house. Mm -hmm. So that means even some Christians have gone back because that's their only possession. So ISIS produces these rather amazing, you know, sort of annual reports. Yes, yes they are extraordinary. And with sort of listings sort of assassinations and truck bombs and so forth. Well, you say that they're, you know, they're not a company, but actually they do behave like a company in some ways, in those ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
in that in those ways they do. I mean, it, it's and always did. I mean, it's sort of, um, but you know, they're organised. They are, they show another aspect of this organisation is they they have heavy casualties at the top. They seem to be able to replace these people yeah. quite fast. Okay, there were some questions. There were some, so if we go to the back, go to the back, and then we'll work our way forward. Could you say something more about sectarianism? I I just can't get my head around how the Sunni Shia division is it is it doctrinal or is it class or what is it that that creates this apparently incredible animosity? Well, I think first of all, it's always been there. I mean, Iraqis often say, and you know, it's all very modern and used to be. You know, we used to get on terrifically well. It, that's actually not true. Uh, you know, a thousand years ago, Shia mosques in Baghdad were being destroyed. Villages, Shia and Sunni tend to live in different parts of them. But, you know, not nothing has... It got worse. 1979, the Iranian Revolution. Suddenly, the Shia become much more politicized. Saddam launches the war against Iran. This enormously increased sectarianism. The uprising of 91 by the Shia is crushed. Again, sectarianism gets worse. Uh, then, finally, 2003, the Shia want to take over. Because, basically, while there were Sunni poor and Sunni rich and uh, rich Shia, that most of the poor were Shia, and most of the, the Sunni weren't quite so poor. So there was a social element in this from the beginning. In the 50s, the Shia were the big supporters of the Communist Party, so you had doctrinal differences and social differences going together. It wasn't a quite that clear-cut, but it was there. And of course, speaking of ISIS, they deliberately increased this sectarianism because one thing that passed rather unnoticed in recent years is just endless truck bombs and suicide bombs directed at Shia civilians in Baghdad and elsewhere. Mm. And so it became almost the norm, you know, 50 people killed here and 100 there and so forth. And the aim of this, I think, was very specific to make sure that sectarian differences got any big, bigger. And then the mechanism I spoke about earlier, that all the Sunni, regardless of their views, felt threatened by the Shia. In fact, the Shia for a long time were very restrained. Um, that uh, they all get, feel threatened and then they have to look to ISIS, that there's no alternative. And I think this is quite deliberately done, and has been done like that since 2003. But I think that also, if you go back even further, I mean, Shiism is a, you know, is a, it branched away from um, Sunnism, and so there, there are fewer uh, Shias. But um, the rise of Wahhabism, I think, is really important, because the Saudis and the Wahhabis see the, the Shi'i not as another branch of Islam, but as heretics. And that that view is fermented more and more, is it not? And so you, yeah. it's a, that creates huge animosity. And obviously this regional rival, which has always been there, you know, has been there for a long time between the Persians and the Arabs, that, you know, it all feeds in. And so there's all these different interests which, which push it more and more. And I mean, as, as Patrick says, I mean, if oh God, if I had a penny for every Iraqi who said to me, "Oh, here in Iraq we have no Shia and no Sunni," oh bollocks! Yes, you do. You just have a, you just pretend that you don't because you have this idea 
of Iraq because people are patriotic and nationalist. But these undercurrents are they're not dealt with and faced. They're suppressed and then they they come out. Yeah, yeah. people to see. I mean, at one point around what, about two thousand and six, I I had a sort of the independence little office in uh, Baghdad, and we had. Um, some Sunni working for us and uh, some Shia and each came to me separately and said look I've nothing against so and so I'm not particularly religious uh, I've nothing against them please tell them nothing about me don't tell them where I live don't yeah. tell them anything else because yeah. uh, I'm just frightened yeah. and uh, the, this is sort of pervasive okay um, who else have we got I can see another hand I can see two hands on the right in uh, 2010, I was fortunate enough to be in Damascus, and through the sort of thoroughfares through the main souk, there were lots of banners uh, praising uh, then Prime Minister Erdogan and his stand, at sort of trying to get the aid ships into Israel. And, at le- and in the sort of English language press you could pick up in the hotel, there was at least the attempt from the Syrian regime to look like they had cordial relationships with Turkey. Where did it all go wrong? Mm. Well, the Turks seem to have thought that they had... I mean, that time they had great influence in Damascus. Uh, Erdogan and uh, Assad, I think, went, went on holiday together. Uh, and God, that would have been fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then, at a certain point, the Turks said, tell you what you do, you hold elections, you do this, or that, and the other thing. Assad and his people thought this is a... A Sunni takeover. They completely ignored it. Then the Turks uh, switched to total support for the opposition, but didn't really distinguish between jihadis and uh, the sort of popular, the genuine popular uprising against Assad. Uh, and they went on doing that. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Turkish uh, Prime Minister was in London a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I saw him with a number of other journalists. And he was saying, but it only was sort of in 2013-14 that we realized, you know, that the the jihadis were taken over. So there's a sort of moment of when this is all to justify, to my mind, Turkish policy, which they were actually giving money and arms to people who were very obviously uh, jihadis, ISIS, Jabhat al-Nusra. Because they don't think that they're a threat to them? They don't seem to think that. I'm not sure why they think exactly like that, because it seems to me fairly obvious what's gone wrong. I mean, they had a very strong hand to begin with. And also, you know, they had quite a lot to show. Turkey was a much better society. But instead, they supported the most regressive, the most violent uh, people in Syria, and very little influence for them, and very destructive for Syria. Okay, we've got, we've got, um, we're running out of time, but we're going to take a couple more. Take the other one there, and then we'll work our way forward. Hello, my name's John Stevens. My question regards the brazenly partisan reporting of events in the Middle East recently as an illustration. You began this evening by reminding us, as if we needed reminding, about the events of the past week. uh, I did ask him. That was why he reminded us, because I had asked him. Yes, indeed. It was a question Uh, to which he responded. Thank you, yes, about the Jordanian pilot who was immolated in the cage. Uh, what we have heard so little about is any reaction. We've heard a loud silence in response to, uh, in reaction to the Jordanians taking five or six hostages out of their prisons and hanging them uh, within 24 hours. Had Israel, for example, uh, responded to the death of, uh, in, in similar circumstances, one of its fighters, 
by taking five or six hostages out of its prisons and taking them to the gallows of the firing squad, the world would be outraged. However, the past week, I've just heard a loud silence. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Patrick? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, the other silence was actually they aren't the first person to be... The uh, Jordanian pilot wasn't the first person to be burnt, but Syrian soldiers who'd been captured had the same thing happen to them without anybody noticing or caring very much. So, sure, yeah, sure, there is a, a fairly wholly partisan view of this. More. Um, okay, gentlemen there. Going back to the Sykes-Picot lines that have caused so many problems over the last sort of century, do you think that, uh, that as part of the solution of, of uh, working together, Western governments and Middle Eastern governments working together to resolve the issue of ISIS and many, possibly many other issues, that um, rethinking the Sykes-Picot, a, a, a dramatic and, and radical rethinking of those lines could be a possibility for the future and could the Kurds and, 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 a, and a viable Kurdish state be part of that solution as well? Yep. You have a sort of Kurdish state existing now, uh, de facto. I, I, yeah, I just as a practical matter, I don't think it'll happen now because they got sort of quite close to it last year when Baghdad had been defeated and um, they didn't expect ISIS to attack them. I mean, the, the Kurdish behavior was pretty opportunistic. They went and grabbed all the mixed areas, Arab-Kurdish areas, and then to their complete astonishment, ISIS attacked them as well. Uh, and the, the, the Peshmerga were defeated. Now they're much more reliant on the Americans than they were before. The Americans don't want to be independent Kurdistan. They also, at that moment, got hold of the Turks, with whom they'd got very good relations, and said, can you help us against ISIS? This was in early August. And the Turks said, well, how about after our presidential election? So at this moment, ISIS is 40 minutes from the Kurdish capital. So I think they bear that in mind, too. So I don't think it'll happen for the moment. But on the other hand, the Kurds have in many uh, sort of de facto independence within Iraq. And as the Iraqi state is very weak, there isn't anything that anybody's going to do about it. What about the broader redrawing of the borders? Well, it's difficult. the problem is that it's very difficult to do now and have a better line than those who were that were before. You know, the line between Iraq and Syria has disappeared. What happens, you know, to the Kurdish communities uh, in southern Turkey and in northern Syria, mm. which are exactly the same, except there happens to be a border running between yeah. them. So, I mean, new borders, just new, new borders, new problems. Okay, let us take... I'm going to take two more questions because otherwise I think I, um, I'm going to get in trouble. Now I'm going to take three. I'm going to take this gentleman, this gentleman, and this lady, and then that's going to be it. Right. And if you could make your questions... Short. Short, and he's going to make his answers short. Thank you. Um, my question is, what's the... Uh, if they do defeat Syria, if Syria crumbles, what's the end? Um, what do you see as being the next step? And a question hanging over that, which is, um, haven't all state builders in, in you know, historically... Uh, relied on brutality, and, and finally they, they sort of formalize and um, make themselves respectable. Could that be an outcome? What, that they overthrow, they overthrow the Assad Syria, regime? Uh, Assad. ISIS overthrows the Assad regime. At what point does it stop? It's, uh, what's, what's the end game? If, if, For them. I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think the... I, I, I mean, some regimes <laughs> get respectable, some don't. They get, just get more violent, you know. 
the whether it, you know you're speaking of the Bolsheviks or whether you're speaking of the Nazis or others, you know at some point people thought well once they get in power then you know they'll sort of simmer down. Uh, and actually there were those in Iraq last year who after Mosul said oh these guys are just the shock troops of the Saudi community will do a deal. Uh, it hasn't happened. It isn't going to happen. Okay, this lady and then this gentleman. Touching on a question that's just been asked. Um, do you, it's, it's such a desperate situation. Do you ever see any hope in the idea of um, governments responding to ISIS by working together? I mean, I haven't well, seen working much with of that. ISIS. No, working, working with each other Heather. in response to the common threat. I mean, in the, yes. I haven't seen the West working much with regional um, uh, well, not obviously, uh, okay. and I wonder wait, wait. whether that's a... Sure. No, that's a... Yeah, no, it's a kind of a crucial question, because there was a moment last June and afterwards where they were really frightened and people sort of didn't like each other, the Americans, the Iranians kind of did work together for a bit, but it didn't last long. And that's one of the reasons that ISIS looks so powerful and why they're still in business. So, okay, let's go... I found this, as I expected, incredibly depressing, mm. and I just wanted a glimmer of hope. Oh, a glimmer and of I hope, Patrick. If you saw a... any, or no, no. whether you're feeling very depressed you yourself. Want a too. Go on, Patrick. Before we end, please. Otherwise, they're just going to drink all the wine and go out in the street and throw themselves in front of London cabs and be awful. Go on, give us, give us a quick glimmer. A bit difficult to have a glimmer. I, I think that I mean the only sort of shadow of a glimmer. If I can have a shadow, is that I think the sort of almost sort of demonic power of ISIS is partly a reflection of the weakness of their enemies. It's not quite as powerful as it looks at the moment. So I think there is a vulnerability they have that hasn't been exploited for the reasons we've been discussing. And I think. It could be. I'm not sure this will happen. But I think they're not quite as strong as they look. Obviously, there are lots of people within their own areas who hate and fear them. Uh, but they don't have an option at the moment, which we also looked at. But these things could happen. It isn't something that is sort of rooted in granite and now established itself and can't be moved. I think it could be weakened. I think it could be eliminated. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.